This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. The following episode is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of American Enough. I'm your host, Vikram Iyer. On this podcast, we unpack the cultural, rhetorical, and policy dynamics of what's swirling around this country in unpacking American identity. What does it mean to be an American? Um, what do our institutions reflect around the world? And what does it mean to measure up to a certain level of patriotism or Americanism um, in a modern era in which a lot of people are questioning uh, one another's level of being American. Uh, today, we have a, um, a very special guest, my dear friend, Kevin Shu. Kevin uh, previously worked with President Obama in the White House and the Secretary of Commerce um, in the Obama administration and recently graduated from Stanford Law. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me, Vikram. Absolutely. I, I think that the reason that I'm excited to have you on today is given your experience in the past, um, you've had some pretty close interactions, um, not just with, with government and how that functions um, from a presidential or White House perspective, um, but specifically in also traveling to other parts of the world um, and, and seeing up close and, and frankly informing up close how we talk about our values um, as a nation, as a people and as a community um, when the president does go abroad. One of the most core tenets of American identity when a president goes on the road um, and addresses other nations or gets to connect with other world leaders is the sense of moral authority. Um, the fact that Americans institu America's institutions, whether they be cultural, um, or whether they be um, political or even media inspired, have a very, very strong grip um, on the attention around the world. And oftentimes leaders, um, and, in, and President Obama did this amazingly, will use that moment, um, that, that captive attention uh, to evangelize what it means to be a democracy. When President Obama had a chance to attend, or sorry, travel to Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, um, he actually went twice, uh, which is sort of a big deal for a, for a, a fairly small nation, and frankly, a nation that prior presidents hadn't really engaged too vigorously. Um, and on both trips, he really spoke to the importance of democratic institutions, this notion that um, in America, core to our identity is the ability to speak out um, and speak on behalf of a variety of ideals and have a very deliberative process that allows ideals to come out into policies and laws on the other side. And Myanmar had gone through a, um, a quite volatile political transition, but coming out on the other end was American applause for some of their democratic actions that they had taken, as well as a lot of love and praise heaped onto a, a famous leader in Myanmar, um, who I want to ask you a bit more about um, in this episode. So maybe we could just start at the top, Kevin. You participated and traveled with President Obama on that tr first trip to Myanmar. Um, what really motivated that trip and why was it important for America um, to be there and discuss what was happening in the region at that time? 
That's right. So uh, the first trip that you're referring to, that actually occurred in November 2012. So that was actually right after uh, Obama's re-election campaign had uh, closed. And I'll give everyone a quick cliff note version of the Myanmar history leading up to that trip so everyone has some context. So number, yeah, so number one, Myanmar as a country is actually the size of Texas. Uh, so a pretty big geographical region. It has a lot of a pretty big population. It's actually also sandwiched between India and China, which are uh, the two most populous country in this world. So geopolitically speaking, Myanmar has always had a very important uh, position uh, in world politics. And ever since the 60s, all the way up until basically 2010, the country was under military rule by a group of generals, uh, essentially a dictatorship, which is why uh, when, you know, when you were talking about no president before President Obama has really engaged with the country, that was the status of that country. So it was was essentially a pariah state until about 2011 or so, when the current leader at the time, President Fen Sen, who is part of the military but was then a civilian, decided to actually open up uh, the country to more democratic participation. They have a parliamentary system. And that reform was met with, of course, a lot of encouragement, a lot of support from the Western uh, countries, uh, in particular the United States. And uh, then Secretary Clinton visited the country before the pres uh, before President Obama did, and then leading up to that, uh, still very uh, I would say watershed moment of a visit for that country, uh, the president went to Myanmar. I was uh, on his advanced staff, and just a little bit of uh, mechanics in terms of how that works. Usually, a group of White House staffers travel ahead of the president, usually about two weeks before he arrives in that foreign country to prepare for the entire trip. And he delivered a very important speech at Yangon University, which is kind of like, you know, their Harvard slash Yale of uh, the country. It has a very strong anti-colonial history. Uh, and all that was highlighted in uh, President Obama's speech that was still, I think, to this day, a very memorable moment for the people in that country. I remember traveling to Myanmar after I left the White House, and this is a uh, later in 2013 as a civilian, as an entrepreneur who wants to check out what is happening with the country there to even do some entrepreneuring myself over there. And people still uh, ask me or actually talk to me about just how incredible that speech was, that visit was. Of course, he visited both the president of Myanmar, Thien Sen at the time, as well as their democracy and human rights icon, Aung San Suu Kyi, at her house. And all that was just still something that people remember probably to this day. And, you know, going back to the theme of American Enough, this podcast, the rhetoric in which the president engaged to really bring this country from essentially a loss of five, six decades, so two generations of people, to a democratic system to transition and re-engage and reconnect with the international community. In that speech, he used a lot of examples from America, from you know our own diversity, our own struggle with uh, race, with citizenship, with immigration, which are all issues that were playing out in Myanmar and uh, in many unfortunate ways are playing out to Myanmar uh, today as well.
So, and that's really powerful to hear that the the messages conveyed, and maybe even the sheer fact that the president, a president of the United States, you know, and an iconic symbol in its own right, um, was was there engaging the people of this country. Um, can you unpack that a little bit? You mentioned that uh, the president or our president had actually created some parallels in terms of similar challenges that we have um, in terms of structuring our own democratic institutions. But there was a lot of hope and optimism in his speech and, frankly, praise um, heaped onto the leader of the country for making some of these transitions. And, frankly, that's something that can only really be credibly conveyed if there's trust in our own institution here in America. Um, and so I, I'm curious from your perspective, what is the importance of moral leadership um, for a president of the United States to talk about democracy abroad? Um, and then I'm also curious, you had mentioned there were some challenges conveyed. So what were some of the challenges that he may have pointedly be uh, either lecturing Myanmar about or, or telling them, encouraging them to tackle? Right. So two things there. One about the moral authority. So I think uh, President Obama's visit to Myanmar in 2012 especially is, I would say, a textbook example of American exceptionalism at its best. Uh, we hear that term a lot in not just our popular media, but in textbooks. If you read any kind of foreign policy or foreign affairs article, which I like to nerd out about in my spare time, you uh, you 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 hear that phrase a lot. But what does that actually mean, and how does that actually play out on the ground? You can refer to Obama's visit to Myanmar in 2012, and I would argue. And this is something I felt, you know, viscerally on the ground is that if it was any other country's leaders visit to Myanmar at that moment, it wouldn't have given that country's reform and their effort to progress and open up that stamp of approval that it needs to really be taken seriously by the rest of the world. And a second level to that, I would say if it wasn't for somebody like President Obama, who is, of course, African-American, who is a, a iconic figure in our own country and the progress in which we deal with race relationship, we deal with uh, discrimination, we deal with all of the rights that were uh, fought for in terms of civil rights. Uh, when he goes to when he went to Myanmar and, you know, I actually would encourage people to watch the video again. I actually watched the whole speech right before this uh, interview just to refresh myself. He literally was referring to his color, the color of his skin, as something that would have prevented him from even voting, you know, X decades ago in America, as a vivid example to the Myanmar people, which at the time, and still is, having a lot of issues with citizenship and recognition recognizing different ethnic and religious minorities in that country to say to them, hey, the way you're progressing is good. There is a lot you need to do. There's a lot you need to work on. But you can look to me as an example of what could be for you in the future, what hope actually physically looks like in the future. And that, I think, is a very powerful example that really only a president like him and only from a country like America can really credibly convey. And to the second point that you were asking about actually, in terms of whether... I think, I think you made... Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Just to... Yeah. I think you raised an excellent point there, which is this sense of the time, the moment, and sort of the 
almost symbolic art of his presence and ascendance um, as being key to that conversation. And just to clarify, I mean, I think what you're saying, and tell me if I'm wrong here, is this is not just about heaping praise on President Obama. I mean, you and I both obviously drink that Kool-Aid and have had the chance to call him a former boss. But at the same time, this is about the moral authority of institutions, right? Credibility of both the speaker, but also credibility in the trust of what that uh, the institution of the United States and our government actually means, right? And so I'm I'm just curious your thoughts in terms of how an institution like ours may be reflected now when you have a, a president who really tests and stretches the the sense of authenticity of that moral leadership in his own kind of more brash and flippant approach to communicating with the world? Would there be a, not just a distinction between Trump and Obama, but would there be a distinction in how the institution of America would be perceived if a speech like that now um, was attempted to be given? I would say so. I mean, if you were to, you know, put Donald Trump as the president in, in 2012, given everything he's done so far as the president, uh, we would not have been able to credibly make the point that having an independent judiciary system was a good thing, which which Obama, you know, laid out very clearly in his speech. That was one of the things that, you know, he wanted the Myanmar people to engage with. They did not have an independent judiciary uh, prior to that moment, right? Uh, another, uh, you know, component would be uh, Obama encouraged them to have freedom of the press, to, re- to respect freedom of the press, to give them the independence they need to check government behavior and people in power, that message probably would have fallen pretty flat had Donald Trump delivered the exact same words at the exact same time. And there are countless other examples that we can look in the speech specifically in terms of the rhetoric, but also the messenger and how that really plays out and really what is the effect of that into the audience that he's conveying to. So I think, you know, the distinction is very, very important and palatable. And is that nothing to do with the, the, the Kool-Aid that we have uh, absorbed over the last few years. It is a quite clear distinction between, you know, how moral leadership is actually conveyed. And and that actually couldn't be more timely because that sense of what not just our country is doing rightly or wrongly, but what Myanmar is doing rightly or wrongly has has surfaced very recently in the news. Um, But there's a a fairly long-term and ongoing challenge um, that the people uh, of that country have faced. And that's specifically in terms of um, persecution that you mentioned, um, the president referenced in his speech, um, and persecution of certain minority groups. Um, And you also mentioned that the President Obama um, had gone and and met with at her home um, an iconic um, human rights leader from Myanmar. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about um, what's been surfacing in the news this week and what's going on with that um, persecuted ethnic minority in the country? Right. Absolutely. So just another, again, cliff note version of the history of this uh, conflict. And I encourage people who are really curious to dig deeper into the history of that. But the basic contour of what is getting a lot of uh, attention on Myanmar these days is that there is a ethnic uh, group. Uh, they are a Muslim minority within Myanmar. They are called the Rohingyas, is the uh, the name of uh, this ethnicity. They live on the western side of the country in this place called the Rakhine State. So you see these words uh, a lot in uh, the media coverage. And they have been actually under persecution by the military of Myanmar, 
which is all predominantly Buddhist, uh, for decades. Uh, in fact, their citizenship was stripped away by a Myanmar law in 1982, particularly to further uh, kind of undermine their status in the country. Uh, and now the violence has really spilled into a level that is quite disturbing. Uh, a lot of people have called this ethnic cleansing, even genocide. Uh, there are approximately 370,000 of these uh, Rohingya folks who have escaped to uh, the bordering country of Bangladesh. And all this is, a, of, is uh, occurring under the leadership of Aung San Suu Kyi, who uh, you referenced as the human rights leader. She was a Nobel laureate. She was under house arrest for many decades, but was the de facto leader of essentially the opposition party of Myanmar until very recently, when she and her party was uh, allowed to take uh, participation in their country's election. Their party won majority. So she is, in a way, the de facto leader of the country. And I do want to uh, just spill out a quick nuance about Myanmar politics. So Aung San Suu Kyi is actually not allowed to ever become president of the country because there is a clause in their constitution that says a person who is married to a foreigner cannot be the president of this country. And Aung San Suu Kyi is married to a, a British uh, academic named Michael Aris. And this clause was written basically to prevent her from eventually become president of the country ever. Uh, so all these pieces play into uh, this current uh, conflict, where not only is this an incredibly human, uh, bad human tragedy, uh, you know, there's a lot of criticism from the UN, from other Western powers about this humanitarian crisis. And of course, a lot of the criticism was directed to Aung San Suu Kyi specifically, because she was an, a human rights icon. And now a human rights crisis is happening under her very eyelids. And that is where the disconnect and the criticism comes in. So, so that's, I want to uh, talk about that further a little bit, because I know that um, clashes, as you've mentioned, have been breaking out between um, the the Rohingyas and sort of the, the central government, if you will. And I think even just as recently as this last month in August, um, another clash in Rakhine broke out um, with a, um, a specific group. I think it's, uh, I may be mispronouncing some of the names here, but the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army claim responsibility for coordinated attacks on actually army posts, police depots um, that were sponsored by the central government. And then, um, as opposed to sort of treating this as, you know, this is ethnic or minority persecution, the government actually declared um, this Rohingya group a terrorist organization, um, in which the, the response from the Rohingya uh, leaders were, you know, we are there to defend our, our civilian population. So, you know, militants um, or terrorists, whatever you want to call them, it's very clear here that there are active um, uh, fights and and physical battles between the Muslim Rohingya and the the Buddhist Rakhine population uh, but yet much of this gets discussed, as you mentioned, from the approach of a human rights tragedy. You know, is this, a, um, you know, systematic ethnic cleansing? Does this border on the line of genocide or is this straight up genocide? So help our listeners unpack sort of what specifically is going on by way of the sense of responsibility. Is it fairly clear and globally understood that the central government is um, really 
cramping the lifestyles and the existential um, presence of this group? Or, or, or do the Rohingyas have a role to play in sort of adding fuel to the fire? Mm-hmm. So this gets pretty complex into what is actually going on, on the ground, and actually uh, one of the reasons why there's so much uh, different, uh, you know, kind of different versions of the story is that that area, the Rakhine State, where all this conflict and violence is happening, is essentially roped off from not just uh, foreign journalists or foreign reporters, but even uh, UN uh, human rights uh, inspectors or any kind of relevant human rights commission that. We would have been a fair and you know a disinterested party to assess what is actually going on, who is the aggressor, who is the victim, uh, and things like that. Uh, there are only some circumstantial evidence out there by Human Rights Watch and others who are actually using satellite images to be able to uh, to assess uh, you know how many villages are being decimated on the ground and you know how many of those are potentially Rohingya villages and things like that. I would say in general the aggressor is most likely the the government the the Myanmar military who's been at this for a while. You know the latest breakout is the latest version that we are hearing. But this violence, this uh, you know animosity between the Buddhists and the Muslims in uh, Myanmar has been going on for quite uh, some time. And this animosity dates all the way back into, you know, World War II, when the colonial powers were in play in Myanmar as well. So I won't bore our audience with all that nitty gritty history. Um, But uh, I think the reason why the the public opinion is pretty one-sided when it comes to criticizing Myanmar in this issue is that this isn't like a new thing. This has been happening for a long time. And what is where the disconnect happens is that I think people, whether you are just a human rights activist or you're people who just want you know these things to stop in general, you pin a high hope on someone like Aung San Suu Kyi to be able to uh, reconcile exactly, or mediate the entire country from this age-old conflict that has been happening for a long time. But what you have been hearing so far from Aung San Suu Kyi is actually more of the official government line that you're hearing from either Myanmar government or Myanmar press, which is that the Rohingyas are a Muslim terrorist group. They are insurgents as well. Uh, You know, the Arakan uh, you know, Salvation Army that you mentioned, which is like a pretty small, uh, you know, militia type organizations, all things considered, like they're like very much a self kind of organized defense group, really, because nobody else is really supporting this group of people at all. They're what is considered stateless uh, right now. Uh, which is like they have no citizenship, which means no country is actually, you know, obliged to protect them in any way, which is a pretty terrible terrible situation if you're one of them. So they kind of have to self-organize. And that is where, you know, and there's a huge power disparity, of course, between what they have and, you know, like large military helicopters from the Myanmar military, like shooting at their villages and trying to chase them out of their homes. So, yeah. And so, I mean, certainly a, this is a conflict rooted in, um, generations of of kind of difference in outlook differences in outlook as well as kind of frankly contempt between different religious groups um and while that is certainly a lot on Aung San Suu Kyi's sort of shoulders, I guess, to be the principal individual looked to to reconcile some of this. Um, this does bring us back to that sense of moral authority that you were alluding to earlier in President Obama's own remarks. Um, in fact, 
we we do know that um, at a minimum, regardless of whether you subscribe to sort of the government line on this issue or you go the way of much of the global community and call it out for what it is, you know, a systematic ethnic cleansing, um, a genocide, um, one thing remains certain. And I think um, the former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan mentioned this recently, that violence is just not going to bring lasting solutions. So regardless of how you um, frame this issue, it's clear that this violence needs to stop. And I believe that even in the region, a lot of protesting has been going on um, to condemn the killing and persecution of the Rohingya from Pakistan, India, Thailand, Indonesia, um, I think Bangladesh as well. So all these Southeast Asian nations um, have called out in protest, but they have not really yet coordinated a response to this deepening crisis. Um, I don't believe any of those member countries that we just mentioned of like the the ASEAN group, right? The Association of yeah. South Asian, Southeast Asian Nations, they, they haven't ratified anything at the United Nations by way of um, a refugee statement or any other protocol. Um, and frankly, the United States um, under this administration hasn't really taken any active steps forward. So if we were just there a few years ago as a country um, applauding the, the strides they've made in democracy, but also um, cautioning them to allow this kind of persecution to continue, um, what is the role of the United States at this point or any entity that has this sense of moral authority to lean into this matter? Um, or should we keep it in arm's length and allow the Rohingya and the central government to sort of solve for this themselves? Right. I mean, that's a that's kind of the golden question right there. Right. Like as a country with the power and the moral authority around the world and, you know, international organizations like UN, what should you do? But also, what can you realistically do? Um, you know, like in terms of calling the issue out, I think people haven't people have, you know, at least the media have done a pretty aggressive job of doing so from the West and countries. And countries have, um, you know, kind of coming around to uh, the, the issue with this problem. But like you said, there aren't enough really countries that have a hold a lot of sway, uh, really voicing their uh, either opposition or a clean, uh, you know, position on this issue. And I think that has a lot to do with the larger geopolitical landscape that Myanmar occupies. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about moral authority and how America plays into that global authority in, in order to, you know, uh, approve or support countries like Myanmar from democratizing itself. But what is really important underneath that is a very classic balance of power calculation. Uh, you know, having American influence exerted in Myanmar is advantageous for our international interests and for national security when it comes to balancing the expanding influence from China and from India. And that's why Myanmar is important for us to engage on on so many levels. And I think that is prob probably in my just, you know, personal th theorizing here, one of the reasons why we or other Western countries haven't engaged that aggressively on the official level about this yet, at least not speaking out publicly, because if you were to say completely shatter Aung San Suu Kyi's reputation because of this issue, what is the alternative that you're dealing with in the future when it comes to maybe the next Myanmar leader or the next president, 
right? It's kind of like I'd rather still deal with Aung San Suu Kyi than you know a military general who could easily take her place because their democracy is very fragile. They've only been through one election nationwide, and where you really test democracies is when you have a few elections, uh, you know, to go to see a very peaceful transition of power. That's when you really have a mature democracy, and you know, countries are struggling with that still. Uh, something that we take for granted over here is that you know whenever something happens, another party takes over, we just say, okay, well that hurts for the side that lost that lost, but uh, it's another day, and we have to keep the system going. That is not something you can just take for granted in countries like Myanmar. So it's uh, and that's where the more authority comes in as well. So it, it's a, it's a tough one, and you know I think at the very bare minimum level, when it comes to what could happen. On the ground, at least certain resources ought to be devoted for the Rohingyas to survive, whether they're in Bangladesh or in their other countries, uh, as they escape to become refugees in those places. And that's something we can specifically do, whether it's via the UN or as the United States. And in terms of condemning this kind of issue in the broader context of international relations, that is a much harder calculus to uh, parse through. Yeah, I, you make a fascinating point, Kevin, because um, and I never thought I would say this before, but, I, you know, I think Kevin Chu, former advisor to President Obama, is actually in line with how our own Senate uh, majority leader, Republican Mitch McConnell, is thinking about this issue as well, because I think this week he says he doesn't really favor um, a congressional approach of, con of condemning Ansan um, on some of these issues, because to what you just said, Kevin, she is the greatest hope that we may have to move for Burma or sorry, Myanmar from where it has been um, to where we hope it should go. And so I think exactly to your point, to the extent that we can find credible voices of moral authority, it may be um, in everyone's collective interest to engage with them and not necessarily poo-poo them at the expense of broader goals. Right, absolutely. And just one quick point to add to that, too, is that uh, even though Aung San Suu Kyi was a Nobel laureate, she is a Nobel laureate, she's an icon of human rights and democracy, she is also a actively participating politician in her own country. And that is always the lens that you ought to kind of evaluate somebody's uh, behavior right now. You know, she is just one of many members of parliament. Yes, she has a lot of power, but she's by no means an official leader of the country. That's why in all the press, you see her being described as the de facto leader. And that is actually her her own authority, her own moral authority that she has accumulated throughout her entire career that lend her that status, which means... You know, if she loses it, she can be removed really like quite easily. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that that's a really good point. And I think, I mean, this comes back to the, the thread that's been consistent throughout this whole conversation, which is, you know, how does that authority or where is that rather? Where is that authority derived from? Is it from, you know, a state institution? Is it from one's own personal moral compass? And then how is that nurtured and preserved? Um, shifting gears a little bit, you mentioned earlier, Kevin, that um, we have our own challenges in this country. And some of those challenges were laid out um, in that address by President Obama. Um, and, you know, to his credit, there are also challenges that President Trump speaks to from time to time, or at least highlights that we can and ought to do better. Um, but 
But when we've talked about moral authority and trust in institutions, one of the most important institutions that can inform that is the power of the media and the power of the press. Um, and whether that media is a format like this, which is newer uh, digitized media consumed through the web, like a podcast or a social media Twitter feed, um, or if it's the more traditional, um, you know, a publication like The Economist or The New York Times, all this swirl of information really impacts how the world is digesting the knowledge around them and the state of affairs around them. You are uniquely positioned to to see sort of how an institution in media is unfolding right now because you have the opportunity to work very closely um, with the press and with journalists in your role on the White House communications team. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that looked like, not just sort of your role day to day alone, but also just how everyone from a press secretary, which has you know become notorious in the eyes of the nation under former press secretary press spike. Sean Spicer, all the way to even just the off-camera interactions between staff like you and the press. What does that look like? Um, and, and sort of how are you seeing the shift um, in terms of a commentary on what media is or isn't, whether it's fake or not? How wh- is that going to change the relationship of how um, White House staff would engage with press? Or is that going to stay the same because reporters are just going to continue to do what they do? Right. So uh, this is another very interesting question that you pose. And I think the best way to actually start off this conversation is to uh, actually reference a conversation that I had with uh, Jay Carney, who was the second uh, press secretary of President Obama, uh, when he described the role of the White House presses, press office to me. Uh, you know, for those of you who haven't had a chance to visit the White House, um, the White House press office is actually physically situated in between the Oval Office and the White House press briefing room. And that is not actually an accident. It's actually both symbolic and functionally very important because, as Jay put it to me, the duty of the White House press office isn't just to serve the president and deliver his message and policy, but also to serve the press and, by extension, the public. So the public are informed about what its leaders are doing, what their plans are, and to keep them accountable. So we've always had, in a way, two bosses, if you will, when it comes to working in the press office. And that actually played out quite frequently uh, you know, during my day-to-day job. Uh, you know, My job was to directly interface with the reporters who cover the White House on a daily basis. We not only coordinate when it comes to the White House press briefing, which happens every day on camera. We also travel with them. We literally sit in a, you know, relatively uh, poorly decorated van with them for hours and hours as we go to all kinds of presidential events or traveling abroad. And these are human beings who are doing a very important job. You know, sometimes they can be annoying. Sometimes they ask you a lot of questions that you don't want to answer. But at the end of the day, I and my colleagues have always treated that solemn duty of being in between the president and the press slash the public. And that is how this thing ought to work. You know, when the president has something to say, we do our best to promote it. And when the press has questions to ask us, we do our best to find the information to give to them so they can package that and put their analysis on them, even though sometimes we don't agree with the analysis, to uh, provide that to the public. And, you know, to turn that, turn that clock to present day, it's very clear that that duty 
uh, of serving two bosses has so undeniably shifted into a single boss, which is Donald Trump, the president. You know, we have seen whether it's Sean Spicer or Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the two main press secretaries, uh, basically peddling out whatever false statements or misleading statements that will make their boss look good or make their day look a little bit better, uh, regardless of what is actually factual and what is actually informational. And I would personally argue that among the many things that the Donald Trump administration has been doing that will be damaging to our country, whether it's healthcare or DACA or immigration, I think the most lasting damage that this administration could do to American society and its moral credibility, both uh, domestically and abroad, is actually undermining the credibility of the fourth estate, of the freedom of the press enshrined in the First Amendment. Because when you have a general, a pretty big slice of the country, 30, 35% or so, who just doesn't believe what the media says, doesn't matter what it says, that is a very fundamental problem and is something that's been aided and abetted by the messages of this particular president. And, and the press has, I mean, that that's an incredibly helpful breakdown, both in terms of the role of, of the press team at the White House, but also in terms of the modern day interactions. Uh, you mentioned the term fourth estate as sort of this other pillar of an American institution that can check sort of um, how the, the three branches of governments are balanced. Oh, sorry, three, three branches of our government get balanced. Um, but the press is often informed by its own core, right? Its own journalists that are doing the fact-finding and the analysis, as you pointed out. And then the government is informed by its own core, um, which is, of course, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees for the United States government, frankly, around the world. Um, but the American people are just consumers of both of those cores. Is there a role or do we need to create a role for an active interaction between American citizens and watchers of this information, consumers of this information, and the very institutions that peddle that information? Is that what's necessary now that this trust has eroded or is the responsibility fall onto the institutions themselves? Um, you're talking about how the public really interacts with official information versus, I guess you can call it the media filtered information. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah, I think an intermediary in the middle, whether you call that the media or the fourth estate, has to most definitely be there and also be independent. And this is not to say our current media landscape doesn't have uh, demons of its own, whether it's, you know, being a private company and therefore has to, you know, drive up ratings to be profitable or try to get the latest eyeball in a ever evolving and fickle public uh, mark, a public audience when it comes to consuming information. But having that filter or that check is probably the most important thing that I think that keeps the American uh, system alive and functioning. Because when you don't have anybody to you know, assess your credibility, then the credibility itself doesn't really hold much water at all. But of course, when the person who's doing the assessing has also been undermined by the peddler of the information, whether it's you know, people in power or existing institutions, then that creates a very uh, tough tension uh, going forward. Because as consumers, you know, as you, know, you, and, you and I are now out of government, we're just private citizens, it's hard to even tell the difference sometimes, what is real and what is not. 
and we benefited from our own experience having the context to maybe deduce here and there or parse through different messages from government spokespeople or analysts and to figure out oh you know that guy is probably peddling information versus you know shooting a straight or some other versions of that but most people don't either have that context or just don't want to have the mental energy to <laughs> to have to go through that right like you just tell me what's going on, right? That's what a lot of people just want to know, but it's becoming increasingly hard, especially when you have an administration that is actively undermining, uh, you know, the people who are doing their job to check them. Though I would uh, uh, want to say that a lot of these reporters are uh, personal friends of mine. I've, you know, spent a lot of time with them. They're people too, at the end of the day. And, you know, you have, you have a lot of those too. They are professionals. They work very hard at their job. They may not do everything right, but they do their best to deliver the right information with the right analysis to the American public. One silver lining of all this attack against the media is that there's actually a rise in interest in the career of journalism among young people since Donald Trump become president, which I think is a very good thing, especially considering that the industry itself isn't actually doing that well financially. So, right, so people think of this as a very noble profession, even against all the attack that you see on TV or at events. And I think that is, that kind of speaks to the resilience of our society, if you want. Yeah, and that's going to be incredibly important because I think whether we're talking about global atrocities and how other nation states are treating their own people or we're talking about our own country um, and, you know, to reference what you outlined in President Obama's speech in Myanmar earlier, um, our own country faces a ton of those challenges. And whether you're observing the politics day to day or you don't even give a shit about the politics day to day, one thing remains clear. And, and this has sort of been core to your point throughout this conversation. That's trust in institutions matter. And in order to maintain the the trust and credibility that we've built as an American identity, um, journalists need to continue providing checks on institutions and government officials need to continue to um, offer the best deliberative open, transparent, and fair process to maintain the integrity of the institution. And at the end of the day, I think all of us as private citizens in this country have the responsibility to make sure that both of those pillars um, have their feet held to the fire and that we engage that process so that way that ecosystem of trust can really be nurtured and passed on to the next generation. Um, Kevin, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Vikram. And for anyone that uh, remains intrigued by how some of those institutions have touched um, different communities in our country, uh, Kevin is also the co-host of an amazing podcast called uh, The Model Minority Podcast. Definitely go and check that out. It's on iTunes. The Model the model majority podcast. Oh, the model majority. Oh, I see oh, what you did there. That was yeah. a nice play on words. That's, That's right. That's model majority podcast. Model everybody. majority. I clearly royally messed that up. I appreciate that. Um, but uh, go check it out. It's on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, all, all the fun mediums. Um, and uh, it's definitely an amazingly important commentary given the stage of how different groups are evolving in our country and given the state of play of how those groups are frankly seen under the eyes of this administration so um thanks again for joining everybody and we will talk to you soon this has been american enough with vikram Iyer. american enough is a production of mouth media network copyright 2017 theme music by chris thomas edited by mark rako 
Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.